I did have a phase where I sort of wanted to not be seen as a youth. Like, even when, you know, like when I was going to COP24, I was so desperate for people to take me seriously. And in my work for Climate Tracker, I really wanted people to take me seriously that I identified as, you know, freelance writer and journal and like climate tracker person from Saigon rather than youth climate advocate from Saigon. Yeah, because I was afraid that, that, you know, being so obviously a youth, I guess, um, could, like we talked about this, right? Like the assumptions that people make. Um, but definitely my engagement with UNDP Vietnam and the Youth for Climate Network recently has re- like convince me that yes i can embrace my youth identity mm. and it still works out <laughs> I fly. hello everyone my name is dean long and welcome to the podcast lifeline In this podcast, I will interview people who are having a positive impact in their community and have a strong message that deserves to be shared. We will dive deeper into their journey becoming a changemaker and hopefully you can take away some insights for your own journey. And please do subscribe to Lifeline on YouTube, Apple Podcasts or any platform that you are using. And also you can share this episode with your friends if you like it. It's really what helps me the most. Mai is a climate journalist and youth advocate from Vietnam. She writes poetry about mosquitoes, trained aspiring climate journalist, and has coordinated the first ever special report on youth climate action in Vietnam with UNDP Vietnam. She shares with us the start of her climate advocacy at 13 years old, her experience as the youngest climate tracker journalism fellow at the 24th UN Climate Change Conference, or COP24, and how she's been moving towards youth empowerment and engagement with the Youth for Climate Network. We discuss how she trained herself to become a journalist, her challenges as a youth, and how she reconnected with her youth identity, and all the small moments that made a difference in her life. This is the longest episode of Lifeline so far. It's around 2 hours and 10 minutes, so enjoy and see you in a while. Cool. Hello, hello Mai, hello Mai Huang. Um, super happy to have you on Lifeline Podcast today. Um, yeah, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling awesome. Hello, Dingo. Thanks for inviting me cool. to your podcast. Yes, I think, uh, you know, so I had the idea to invite you for a long time. And after, so I'll just remind a bit how we know each other. So what I say makes sense for everyone. But I think, how do I know you actually? Oh, yeah, no, it's from the <laughs> Indo-Pacific. Yes. Dialogue. Yes, I remember. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I don't even remember what I. Oh yeah, it was about social entrepreneurship and young people. So I got invited to speak there, and I was so excited to see delegates from Vietnam as well. Um, so I think yeah, I think we just added each other on Facebook. Then I was following what you were doing. I was like, oh, she's from Climate Tracker. I heard about it. I want to know more about Climate Tracker. So. We had a call about that. And at the same time, everything happened really like in parallel. Uh, yeah, everyone in UNDP Vietnam was like, you have to invite Mai Huang as a speaker. I was like, oh, it's perfect coincidence. I'm speaking to her tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, all the dots connected. And, you know, after, so I, we invited you as a speaker for two sessions. So one, you were explaining about the, with your life, basically, mm -hmm. like a mini version of Lifeline, very tiny version of mm -hmm. your life. And the other, So you were sharing about the special report you are leading. We'll come back to this hopefully today. But yeah, anyway, during, I just want to share that during the session, I think every time you spoke, like really the chat went crazy. But I think more than other speakers, I think that was amazing. In the feedback form also, I told that by messenger, I want to, but I want to say it out loud as well. But yes, yeah, so many, you know, we asked this question, what is one speaker that inspired you? So many people said my, Huang, Huang, my, like all the possible combinations of your name. <laughs> Someone even said okay. the Vietnamese girl who's a journalist, but I don't remember her name. <laughs> I guess it was you. <laughs> so, and then Linka kept telling me, I want to hear my Huang in Lifeline podcast. I was like, yes, I mean, actually that was a plan. So, okay, let's just do this as quickly as possible. Um, okay, so that was a lot of momentum building for everyone and the long intro, but yeah. No uh, pressure, right? <laughs> yeah, no pressure. Uh, yeah, maybe I'll just invite you if you want to introduce yourself, where you're calling mm -hmm. from, and who is Mai Huang. All right, so hi everyone. My name is Mai Huang. Um, first name is mine, last name is Huang. It gets very confusing because, well, I went to school in the US for a while, but in Vietnam, the name is last name before first name. So even Vietnamese people get confused about whether my name is Mai or Huang, but you can call me Mai. Um, and I'm recording right now in my bedroom in Saigon, Vietnam, which is where I'm from. And yeah, I mostly grew up here. <laughs> cool. Um, I, so I love reading out loud how people usually introduce themselves on their LinkedIn, on their mm. blogs, on their everything. And I found a oh lot of God, funny stuff. Is that what stuff. you're going to be doing now? <laughs> yes. So I have two versions of what I found. One is... Okay. Oh, okay. Should I start with the short version? or the? Okay, let's start with the short version. But the, the, version, the Facebook version is I write poetry about mosquitoes. Yes. Would you like to, uh, to elaborate a bit on that? To elaborate on that? Oh, okay. So the story behind that was, um, I started writing poetry when I was around, I think, 13. Yeah, 12 or 13. And especially, I, um, well, I went to boarding school for high school in the U.S. So I was 13, 14 when I um, was in the U.S., For the first time and I was terribly homesick because I was pretty much on my own um, in a different country with strange people it was very strange and I really felt homesick so that's when I started writing a lot um, and it was sort of like a way for me to process what I was going through and um, yeah it was fun as well I really enjoyed writing and then I vividly remember because Vietnam it you haven't been here yet it's notorious for mosquitoes they're everywhere and especially my house because it's in a pretty suburb like slightly rural area it's still in Saigon like Ho Chi Minh City but not definitely not the city center there's a lot of like trees and um, wild grass and animals around um, so there's a lot of mosquitoes especially like 
after around 6 or 7 p.m. Like, I cannot sit in the living room because I would get bitten by, like, 10 mosquitoes. Um, So I always thought of that as a nuisance, of course. But then when I went to the U.S., I realized there were no mosquitoes until May when... Um, Also, for context, I went to school in the Northeast, so it's, like, really cold most of the time. Very, very different climate from Vietnam. So it wasn't until May when, like, things were blooming. It was finally sunny in spring that some mosquitoes came out. And then I got bitten by one mosquito, and I was like, oh, my God, mosquito! And I felt so happy. It was really funny. None of my friends could understand why I was so happy to be bitten by a mosquito. But I wrote a whole poem about that. Um, And then I actually, I think I sent it to my English teacher at the time, and she really loved it. So, yeah, that's been my Facebook bio ever since I wrote a story about a mosquito. It's so interesting because... I mean, I see like mosquito is like, you know, the symbol of, I mean, symbol of your homesickness to Vietnam. And it's so funny because I, you know, when I read the sentence, yeah. I mean, obviously I didn't think about what you just said, but okay, well, I will share with you what I thought when I thought, because, you know, in the hot, I mean, we'll come back to that, but in the yeah. hot seat, yeah. you were sharing how, you were, so you were sharing like why climate journalism is important. Yeah. I mean, for you, it's important because you want to highlight human stories and people's stories beyond just facts and figures. Even if it's important, you want yeah. people to relate and understand what is the day, like impact in their daily life. Mm-hmm. So I so thought that was the more poetry part, you know, like poetry mm-hmm. is like, you know, writing beautiful human stories. And I thought mosquitoes were just like the symbol of climate change somehow in the biodiversity nature. So I thought it was like this sentence that really summarized your work with Climate Tracker, your climate change advocacy. <laughs> Actually, not really. Well, I mean, as time went on, I did sort of, the reason why I still kept with that bio, is that, and I was thinking, yeah, like I think it fits with the, you know, writing and like biodiversity idea as well, but the true origin story was literally I was writing a poem about a mosquito. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's cool. That uh, now it's, I mean, sometimes you can just use for different contexts and you have different stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cool. Um, okay, so the second uh, the second bio, it's not really a bio, but actually it's very similar to, I love it, uh, to Tuan. So for the record, I interviewed Tuan Think, uh, mm. two Tuan. weeks ago. No, was it Tuan from from Vietnam from Wynet? Oh no, not Tuan. Uh, Tuan 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 Sarzinski. Oh, oh, Tuan Sarzinski. Yes, him. Sorry, my <laughs> Vietnamese uh, accent. <laughs> um, okay. So he he also writes this on his medium. You know, a lot of different words. Even me a bit mm-hmm. on my Instagram, random stuff. So I will read yours, and as then I would love. I don't know, any funny stories, explanation. But yeah, mm-hmm. so it's, I found it on your personal blog, very difficult mm-hmm. to find, but which is, oh my, what is that? Freelance writer and journal from Saigon, PEA graduate, ASEAN child, fire horse high, somebody's buito, sustainable virtual investor, happy when house hopping, aspiring open water diver 
learner of human imperfections, lover of greens, an evolving being. And can you, do you remember the last one? No. <laughs> okay, it's uh, currently without affiliations, 2021. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> That was actually kind of funny because I... Immediately after I graduated from high school, I started my gap year before college, right? And I was like, yes, finally, I'm not affiliated to any academic institution. And then I changed all of my personal emails to currently without affiliations. But then I realized it wasn't quite true because I'm still working with Climate Tracker up until December. And then, yeah, I guess now you can say I am truly currently without affiliations. Um, but Do you have questions about that bio? Um, actually, I have a lot of questions about okay. this bio. Uh, I, I don't know where to start, actually. Um, <laughs> wait, let's... Yeah, I was wondering, like, why did you write ASEAN child and not Vietnamese mm. child, for example? Mm. Good question. I think that... A year, so I updated that bio around seven months ago. Definitely a year and a half or two years ago, I would have written Vietnamese child. But then, the more climate change work I did, and also, I think particularly climate tracker was operating a lot on a regional basis. So I had a lot of opportunities to do stuff um, with people in the Southeast Asia region and sort of think about the region as a whole and its common challenges and um, potential. So it just felt more right by the time that I was writing my bio for that, um, for that website to say ASEAN child. And yeah, I think climate change affects all of the ASEAN countries um, to a very high degree, especially Vietnam and Philippines rank consistently as one of the top like most affected and Thailand as well um, so yeah I think climate working in climate change has pushed me to think about the world in terms of a more regional um, like viewpoint because climate change affects everyone right mm. um, so just saying Vietnamese felt a little bit too I don't know like I'm, I don't want to seem like I'm just working in a box. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. I mean, I find I think that's, uh, that's, that, I mean, I was reading everything. Uh, mm. I think that's the first thing I made me think. Because mm. I, I think like for me, I will never say EU child or European <laughs> child, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, maybe if I was working, covering EU in my work, I mean, yeah. you know, with your explanation, it makes a lot of sense. And it's, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, I found it interesting. Like, uh, I think, yeah, I, think I, maybe, I also, yeah. sorry, um, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think that was also when I was just, um, I just received the position of Southeast Asia lead at Climate Tracker. So <laughs> that also pushed my thinking. Yeah. No, yeah, I was wondering whether it was more professional identity or maybe it was just like identity. Maybe you feel really belonging to ASEAN, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would like to travel around ASEAN more. I've been to 
most, well, not most, but quite a lot of countries in ASEAN. But I'd like to really have the opportunity to immerse myself in other countries as well. As actually the plan for my gap year was to travel around ASEAN. And um, I had some other plans uh, for other countries outside as well. Um, but obviously COVID. So, so far spent it in Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. so we'll... Yeah, I have a lot of questions about your gap year. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll come back on that. I, I like to do it chrono- chronologically. Yes. yes, we can do um, it chronologically. Um, yeah, so I think, uh, I, so I, again, I stoke you so much. <laughs> I don't say that to scare you, but just really, if I name, if I drop like some details about your life and you're like, well, how does he know that? Yeah, I just read everything possible. <laughs> you should be a journalist. You'd be very proficient. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very impressed. Um, so I saw. I, I, I think the earliest thing I've seen um, mm. was when you were 13 years old, and the, mm-hmm. there was this I quote devastating toxic chemical spill in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and you started to take action for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, we'll come back on that. But I just wonder what I mean. Do you have any memory of? How was your life? What happened until 13 years old? Like, what were your dreams before that? Uh, how did you grow up? Where did you grow up? What were you doing with your life before 13? Before 13? Um, <laughs> Deep question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. That felt like a really long time ago. What was I doing before 13? <laughs> um, well... Again, as mentioned earlier, I was born in Saigon. Um, I think, I don't know if it's still on my bio anymore, but at some point, I definitely, like, aside from ASEAN Chai, I wrote, like, from Saigon, something like that, because a big part of my identity is growing up in this city. And, um, yeah, I think before 13, I just went to school and did the normal, you know, school student stuff. Um, I enjoyed reading a lot. Um, That was one of the things that I vividly remember. Like I would bring a book into school like a lot of times and um, I not a lot of people related with how much I love reading which was a little bit difficult for me um, especially in primary school because I was like seen as a nerd and then in um, secondary school, I sort of went to a magnet public school in, in Saigon, and then I found other nerds <laughs> like myself, and it became more fun. Um, yeah, I, so I've been into reading and writing for a very long time, definitely before 13. I started writing my, like, I started journaling when I was six or seven, I think seven, um, which I think journaling is the precursor to, you know, having a blog and um, documenting your life and stuff like that. So I think documenting my life and things that were happening around me have definitely been part of just like my personal practice um, for a very long time. Um, I credit my mom for that because she taught me my first diary when I was seven in first grade. And yeah, um, I still get a kick out of reading <laughs> what I wrote back then. It was very bad. Um, I also focused on learning English before 13 because it was a big thing for sort of Vietnamese students my generation who want to mm, learn more about the world and who are ambitious about, you know, being able to change things and do things. And 
just like have more opportunity um, for education. It was sort of a common belief that we had to learn English. And I think people, a lot of people in developing countries and especially in the ASEAN region would relate to this as well. Um, and I went to a public school. So I never went to international schools. So it was hard to be good at English because we didn't have terrific teachers. Um, so a lot of my time was also spent like self-studying English. I did have, um, I did go to some extra classes. It was pretty common back then. And I really enjoyed it actually, because I, starting from the time when I could read more advanced stuff, um, I would read things ranging from, um, you know, Walden, Henry David Thoreau, um, which was probably one of the first books I read that was very much about like nature and um, humans relationship to it I also read uh, a lot of fiction so I loved like the British classics when I was a kid stuff like Jane Eyre um, I had I actually listened to podcasts as well which uh, we were talking earlier in Rome. it's not too common or too popular in Vietnam yet um, but I was a big fan of audiobooks, podcasts. Um, so I would listen to Jane Eyre like every time before I fall asleep. And then I think that's how I learned English. Um, yeah. <laughs> so pretty much that's, that's, I think that sums up my life before 13. And then at 13, sort of things came together. I, so my dream was to, apply to a scholarship to study in Singapore for high school because um, for kids who went to magnet schools in, in secondary school in Vietnam, like sixth to eighth grade, or just like anyone who um, wanted to pursue, you know, academics like elsewhere in a more rigorous environment, um, there were scholarships called ASTAR, um, and one other one, I forgot the name. I think it was called ASEAN. But yeah, there are two like government-funded scholarship programs that a lot of kids were applying for. But then my year, when I got into eighth grade, for some reason, A-Star was um, suspended for one year. I think they restarted it a couple, one or two years later. But for my year, they didn't have it when I was um, at the age when normal, normally people would apply. So I was like, okay, what am I going to do with myself now? <laughs> and then um, fortunately at the time, oh, eighth grade at 13 was also, now we're starting to talk about when I was 13. So this is not before 13 anymore. But at 13, um, I got into a debate team with a couple of kids. Uh, and we were participating in a program called the Ward Scholars Cup. Um, which was sort of like an academic decathlon plus debate plus a lot of other things. And um, aside from being a tremendous opportunity for me to also learn more about the world um, and read more, <laughs> it, one of my teammates um, in that debate team, his he had family in the U.S. So he was applying to boarding schools in the U.S. And then... Through him, I realized that it's not a very well-advertised opportunity at all, but there are a couple of boarding schools in the U.S. that are private institutions that accept international students, and they have, um, uh, they're called financial aid because it's sort of like 
you have to submit your <laughs> you can edit this out later if you want but basically um i applied for financial aid um scholarships at a bunch of us american boarding schools when i was 13 and then yeah got into one of them called phillips exeter and then the summer before i went or no i think a couple of months before i went was when the um Formosa spill happened in Vietnam that you referenced a little bit earlier. And that was really the biggest, like I've read about environmental disasters before, but it didn't really hit um, until that happened to Vietnam. And I realized that, you know, things like this could really happen close to home and you can see the consequences on people. I mean, it was in Vuong, so still it's in the central Vietnam, not like close to Saigon, but still like it was happening in Vietnam and it was all over the news and people were going on the streets, which is very uncommon in Vietnam because it's not allowed. <laughs> um, but yeah, so now we're at that point. <laughs> in yeah. <Thailand. laughs> um, I... I, I will ask you a question about this, but I just wondered in general, you know, through mm -hmm. when you grew up and stuff like this, you know, like when we look at your background and experience, you know, from, you know, the first glance, you know, I mean, the first thing I saw was, you know, I mean, the first thing I saw and then I got more details from you is, you know, like youngest climate tracker fellow mm -hmm. ever. Harvard, uh, you start our Harvard next year. Yeah. Like this kind of thing. I was wondering, were you always the best at school? Or is it something? <laughs> no, but you know, like, is it, oh uh, did you have high ambitions for yourself <laughs> when you were younger? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I think really I struggle with like, now that I've, I'm older and like not in school anymore for, for a couple of months. Um, I look back at my mentality, especially before I was 13, like before boarding school. And I was like, wow, I really cared about school. Like probably more than necessary. I mean, I guess it turned out okay. But I was very, um, yeah, I guess determined to do well in school. Um, I For the magnet school and I went to in secondary school it was actually the only school in Saigon where you had to take an entrance test and the uh, admission rate was like around 10% back then um so there was definitely some pressure that I put on myself to like you know I really want to go to school and I really want to do well because I want to have you know these other opportunities down the line to further my education etc Um, so yeah, the, did, I may, I may or may have not have been valedictorian a couple of times, <laughs> but did it come from, I don't know, your parents or is what mm. it was self, self pressure? I think most of it was self pressure, although my parents definitely, they, um, they cared, but they didn't pressure me. So especially my mom, my mom would always worry about me being overworked and like, I remember she would take me out to, I don't know, like the cinema or the mall all the time. She was like, you need to take a break. <laughs> you don't need any more studying today. Um, but 
my dad, I think, was the one who really cultivated in me the idea that you can study abroad, um, even without having relatives in a certain country. And it's something that I could aim for if I want to, you know, if I want to take on that challenge. And yeah, ever since a very young age, I think he, um, I mean, they did, you know, send me to some extra English classes and um, yeah, sort of kindled a spark in me about how important it was to make sure that I would be well equipped with all of these tools to learn more about the world later on. Um, and my dad also, he never like pressured me to, you know, get first prize in school or like get into this um, selective program or that program. But he um, did sort of describe to me the reality of how competitive it would be for um, a young Vietnamese girl who wants to study abroad without relatives or family connections and um, it would also be very expensive if prohibitively expensive if I didn't get scholarships. So I was aware of the um, competitive realities of um, the things that I wanted to do. So I think that turned into like me setting goals and sort of pressuring myself mm. to to do all of that. Um, but yeah, now I think I'm, I'm sorry for breaking your chronological order, but I think now I'm at a point where um, it's a little bit scary because I need to figure out like, wow, I have so many opportunities that um, happened because I set out goals and tried hard to achieve them. But also I was tremendously lucky in a lot of ways. And now I need to figure out how to make it all worth it. <laughs> so that's the scary part. <laughs> Trying to do well in school was easier in retrospect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I like chronological order, but I uh, can always go back and forth. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> yeah. But since we are speaking about this topic, um, like, yeah, like, okay, no, maybe let's go back to chronological order and it will make more <laughs> sense. Like all, all right. your goals and stuff. Um, okay. So yeah, so you see in the news is, uh, well, catastrophe in Vietnam. So what? Do you tell yourself and also, yeah, can you, because it's, I, I've seen that you, you went as well yourself on strike uh, with other people, like or your friends, but then you realize, I mean, there's so many good things. I don't want to, to take your word. I would love, yeah. Can you, ex can you explain a bit like what happened after you seen the news and why did you want to take action? Um, so I don't know if I talked about this in the article that you read but actually one of my teachers at um one of the english uh like extra classes that i went to uh participated in the i don't know if i would i wouldn't call them strikes it was more you know peaceful protests like people marching on the streets um holding signs about how was really outrageous that this happened and the government is not doing enough to um, first of all like help the people who are affected and prevent similar incidents from happening in the future. Um, also for for context, what happened in 2016 was in April um, there's a steel mill, a steel plant in Vuong in the middle, in the central part of Vietnam um, that 
was um, accused of dumping, and there was a lot of evidence that they did um, dump a lot of chemicals, and they didn't have good uh, sort of water waste management um, facilities, and frankly, didn't seem like they cared too much about that. And the regulation of um, the provincial government wasn't. Uh, it was not adequate, as we saw, like by the consequences. But there were massive um, fish deaths um, in the province of Hating, which was where the plant was, um, and in surrounding areas in central Vietnam as well. Um, so the fish death, it was like tons and tons of fish, and then people were doing experiments of like you know putting fresh fish into the water um, and see how long it would take for them to die and like it was something crazy like they would a lot of fish would die in just like an hour of being in that water so everyone knew that something really bad was going on um except the plant kept denying responsibility and then um there was this one quote i forgot who said this um and i can double check afterwards but there was this one government i think provincial government authority who said okay, like, of course, there's going to be going to be, you know, like environmental pollution associated with industrial activities. So what are you going to choose? Like factories or fish? The, the key of the quote was like, factories or fish, like he put it in a very, like polarizing way, like you can, it made people see that the government's thinking, at least that particular officials thinking was, you either have development, or preserve your environment. Like it didn't seem like there was any middle ground that they were thinking of or um, putting into regulations and into policy. So that really angered people. And that was on a lot of the signs um, that were on the streets during those months. Um, So I was pretty scared actually, and still am to a certain degree because it's still a, a little bit of a taboo topic um, to talk about like everything happened surrounding that spill in Vietnam. Um, But it was common knowledge that a lot of people did go on the streets and yeah, I joined into one of the, just like one of the marches in Saigon when my teacher at the English school did. And In... I mean, I think this is fine if you put on your podcast, but I just, I still don't talk about this in any, like, Vietnamese language so hmm. publication. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But okay. I guess, in, yeah, it's in my um, school, like, article, which is in English. Yeah. So I think this should be fine. Okay. So as long as there is no Vietnamese subtitles? No, no Vietnamese. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, this is sort of unrelated, but... That actually just reminded me, you know, Greta, around two weeks ago, um, wrote something on Twitter about supporting the campaign um, in Japan. And I think she just said Asia in general. Uh, But the gist of it was like um, JBIC and a couple of um, just like public financing institutes in Japan um, have committed to phase out, like to no longer finance um, new coal projects abroad, but then they were still holding on to Wumang 2, which is a 
again in Bunglang, um, the central region of Vietnam. It's a coal power plant that um, JPEG has been involved with for quite a while. Um, and yeah, they are still refusing to to draw um, like withdraw their support for that project. So the big campaign in Japan and in Asia, I think there might have also been a couple of people in Vietnam supporting it, although, yeah, it's, um, they do it sort of secretly. <laughs> um, and so Greta posted her Twitter statement about supporting that campaign. Uh, and it, she was quoted in Nikkei. Um, wait, I actually want to search this up. Do you mind if I do this? It's a little bit, it's not about me personally, but it really Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Okay. Um, so, and I want to get the quotes right. So it's on Nikki Asia. Um, and wait. Hmm. Yeah, so the article was called Greta Thunberg Joins Asian Charge Against Vietnam Coal Plant. Um, and she was quoted as saying, Swedish, like the lead, read, Swedish environmental activist Greta Thunberg has lent her support to young climate protesters, the word was protesters, in Japan, South Korea, and Vietnam to oppose the Wang Tu Coal Fire Power Plant project in Vietnam. So that's the lead. And the day that article came out, um, it was translated into Vietnamese by a bunch of Facebook groups that, um, yeah, generated a lot of heated discussion in the climate advocate community in Vietnam because everyone could foresee how just the use of the word protest would turn mm -hmm when translated into Vietnamese, would turn a lot of people against Greta and against climate advocates in general um, because how taboo a subject it still is in Vietnam. And I, at first I was shocked that people were so worried um, because in a way I have been in the U.S. for a while and sort of more used the idea that, like I'm still wary when it comes to um, how far I can push it in Vietnam, but like I'm still, I did, participate in the climate strikes in the U.S. and um, sort of have this idea that, you know, Vietnam is getting to a place where it's more okay to talk about these things. But then it turned out that people's concerns were very much valid because like literally an hour or two after the English article came up, there were these Vietnamese translations on the Facebook groups that really sort of hyped up the extent to which like protesters meant. Um, and then there were a bunch of comments from people. I read a couple of them and then I basically could not continue because they were being so mean um, mm. about Greta and about the prospect of having protesters in Vietnam. So yeah, that was a, um, a little bit of a blunt reminder for me of how, you know, it's just, I mean, I'm, I don't want to be like overly pessimistic or um, anything, but I just am constantly like being in Vietnam and wanting to do um, work that matters in Vietnam. I think one has to be very 
aware of the realities and how advocacy here looks different, very different from advocacy in, um, in a lot of places and particularly in the US where I was for a while. And no, it, it's interesting, like, do, because you mentioned all, like, the heated comments, but, mm -hmm. like, do they come from, I mean, who, who would write, I mean. Yeah, I, that's a good question, right? Like, <laughs> Part of me wants to believe that these are just like random bots that <laughs> <laughs> comments. Um, I didn't like stop the people who wrote the comments because there were so many, but um, it took on a very like condescending tone mm. towards um, Greta and also just like like drawing parallel between or or saying that climate protesters in Vietnam are the same as people who like would cause you know would cause havoc and like mm. yeah be violent and stuff like that um just from that one quote yeah so, um, yeah it was tough to read people were I guess I've read similar things in English, right? Because Greta is also, like, has faced a lot of backlash from just, like, conservative media in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, but in Vietnam, it takes on a different tone because the very mm. act of, like, her calling for the strikes and um, the word protest has such a mm. connotation here, I guess. So you... I guess in all your, is it some, it's something you think about or you keep in mind, like for all the articles you write? I mean, do, do you write in Vietnamese also? Yeah, or mainly yeah I write in, in Vietnamese. No, I write in Vietnamese as well. Uh, most Especially of the that... climate tracker articles I wrote, all of them were for, like before I became part of climate tracker, when I was a fellow, um, I had to publish in Vietnamese media. Mm. Um, so all of them were for Vietnamese out news outlets. Some of them were from, for, were in English, but I say maybe like 60, 70% of the articles were in Vietnamese. So it was tricky to navigate like how, how best to phrase certain things. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that uh, that's what you did, right? After the peaceful protest, uh, after yeah. the spill. I mean, I read on the, the this article was great, but I read on the article uh, you said, you know, during the the protest, it's when I'm not sure if it's storytelling or if it's true or if you said, but mm -hmm. I'll just, you said, yeah, it's a moment where you realize you had a voice, mm -hmm. and. So you said you were 13 or 14. I think it's very powerful to realize this when you are 14. I think mm -hmm. some people don't realize this in their lifetime. Some mm -hmm. people realize it very late. Mm -hmm. And I found it very interesting that you realize this super, I mean, for me, it's super young, but <laughs> at 14. Yeah. And did... But I guess, like, you know, so, so from that, um, I would say, like, you, I guess, so what, 
you could have continued to mm, protest, but you decided to fight. Uh, what was uh, what, what? How did you tell yourself? Oh, I need to write something about it. I think it was a combination of different things, right? But like I said previously, like protest, except for in the case of that um, Formosa spill in 2016, because it did cause a collective outrage. Um, a lot of, even like the official newspapers, um, a lot of articles, um, really good articles, like writing, um, taking a, a critical tone and wanting to call the government officials um, to be more responsible. So there was this sense of, you know, this amount of citizen action is justifiable because of how big the outrage was. But after that, I sort of never saw, a, and it sounds really bad that it has to be that way, but I think in Vietnam, the situation still is the case that unless Some, there's such a high-profile disaster that collectively outrages everyone, right? Then it's not really feasible to um, organize peaceful marches or protests and get a lot of support um, from the community to do so. Um, I know that a, a group of around 50... <laughs> 50, yeah, 50 kids um, brought the school strike to, to Saigon in 2019. Um, but they only got coverage on English language press. Mm. Um, pretty much mm, the Vietnamese press and just social media and everyone like either just ignored them or talked about them in a way that was very not constructive. So I think I realized that in the context of Vietnam, uh, processing and, and organizing, you know, the strikes or public demonstrations um, to call for a certain policy is not, in, is in most cases, not the most effective way to advocate for change. Um, talking about the, the strike um, event that I mentioned. So I was in New York at the time. So I actually participated in the, this, yeah, it was September 2020 um, strikes in New York. And then I was asked by that point, I had only written quite a lot for different newspapers in Vietnam. So I was asked by um, one of my former editors to write an op-ed about that strike in New York and why climate change matters for my generation. And the funny thing was... Um, I actually referenced that there was this group of 50 people in Vietnam who really courageously tried to bring the strike to Saigon. And then the editor cut it out because he told me that it's okay for you to talk about striking in the U.S., but you can't even hint at the fact that there are mm. these protests happening or strikes happening in Vietnam. Because And the reasoning that he gave was, well, no other Vietnamese language press is doing it. So I'm not going to be the one. It's this, you know, self-censorship that happens mm -hmm. and, and working um, and having some experience with, you know, trying to pitch and trying to write about climate change in Vietnamese. Um, the official language, Vietnamese language news outlets, I'm certainly very aware of this reality. Um, and also 
to answer your original question, it, I did make the decision to go to high school in the U.S. So um, I would go back every summer and it was, I, I kept myself updated on things and, um, you know, still had contacts on the ground and could do and could write um, and could pitch to these news outlets, but it wasn't quite feasible to, you know, organize a lot of direct action underground either. Even if um, we came up with more effective ways of doing it, I wasn't, I made the decision to not be there all the time. So it became very difficult. So you were still writing from the US as well? About, uh, about Vietnamese related climate change like, uh, thing? Yeah, so I started writing in 10th grade um, when I was, I think, my first article. Um, I got the idea for it in the US and then I came back to Vietnam and did all the interviews. And then I went back to the US and like finished it writing and pitched it basically. Yeah, so... What, the, what was it about? My first, first article? article... My first article was how... Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it had to do with um, how climate change was impacting ethnic minorities in the Northwest mountain regions of Vietnam. Um, yeah. So I interviewed um, a couple of people who did work in that region. And um, I think I talked about how the rising temperatures affected crops and people's livelihoods. I also talked about how it related to more incidents of floods happening, um, And yeah, generally how ethnic minorities in those regions already had it very hard in the first place and um, are generally like lacking in mobility, like compared to people in other regions. And then climate change made it really difficult for them to live in this place where they've been for a very long time. Um, so that was my very first climate article in, when I, that I wrote in 10th grade. So you had the... So you had this idea of topic, yeah. But you 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 wanted to do the interviews, read it, and pitch it. I mean, that was a plan, or you mm -hmm. just had the idea, and because you know, like I I, I have a lot of ideas of stuff I would yeah. like to write, but I don't necessarily yeah. think to to pitch them to pitch newspapers, it. right? Um, like, so I had the, yeah, I had the idea, and then. It's like, I really want to actually write the story and have people read it. Um, oh, I think at the time I was <laughs> in 2016, right before studying abroad, going to the U.S., I organized a model UN conference in Saigon. Um, it was actually one of the first conferences for public school students because previously there were um, debate tournaments and like such opportunities but mostly limited to international schools in Viet in Saigon um, so I wanted to organize one that was more accessible to everyone and then that event got some press coverage which is how I managed to get in contact with some journalists and editors that helped me pitch the article 
in yeah in 10th grade so that would be 2017 when i pitched the article how November were you already aware of the process of like you need to you know like if oh, you ask me a like few how years to ago, write right so yeah, how to write the correct article where to pitch mm-hmm. it how to pitch mm-hmm. it so this is where my decision to go to school in the u.s actually also really impacted my where I'm, i am right now in a positive way um because my school was it's called a preparatory school which means that they really do a good job of um like allowing students to have all of these pre-professional clubs and opportunities to you know try out different things that um would not be available to high school students in a lot of places otherwise and definitely would not have been available to me if i had stayed in vietnam um but i joined the school newspaper Like, pretty much it was one of the first things I did when I got to school in 2016. I didn't have, I think when I first joined a newspaper, I didn't quite, like, envision myself as, you know, using, okay, I'm going to use this medium since I can't be in Vietnam and I can't protest in Vietnam and that's not the most effective thing to do anyway. I'm going to, you know, go into climate journalism and affect change that way. I didn't, like, think about all of that just yet when I got started, but I was aware that, Um, I I was very passionate about writing and I was sort of good at writing. (laughs) So, um, and I felt excited about the idea of not just writing about myself or writing fiction work, which I'd done previously, but, you know, writing about other people and things that were happening and um, potentially raising awareness about some very important issues in my school community. Um, So I joined the newspaper and Um, it's called the Exonian. You can search it up. And it's actually one of the oldest student run like newspapers in the U S established in 1880 something. I should notice, Um, but it's been around for for more than 200 years or so. No, no, no. Uh, More than a hundred. And Oh, my board was when I became the editor, I was the 140, first board so that's how long the newspaper has been around so long story short they really had um terrific advisors um who were former journalists uh who were passionate about you know cultivating this appreciation for journalism and journalistic practices in the younger generation so right away i was assigned um one or two articles every week in my ninth grade and was sort of like taught on this job like how to do it properly by people who had decades of professional experience plus my peers who also have done the newspaper and have pitched to professional news outlets in the U.S. Um, So I learned pretty quickly and then by 10th grade by 2017 um, I was getting like four articles per week that I wrote for the school newspaper And so I felt pretty confident in my ability to, you know, structure a news article and go about getting interviews and, um, you know, journalism ethics and things like that. So, yeah, that's when I I also got the idea of, of writing about climate change in Vietnamese and pitching it to Vietnamese outlets. Everything sort of came together at the right time. Um, And then shortly after I knew about Climate Tracker, So, 
it's very very lucky how the stars align. <laughs> it, do you have the same writing process when you are writing in English or in Vietnamese? I mean, the journalism process is pretty much the same, right? Like you um, come up with an idea. Hopefully, it's a good idea, a timely issue. People should care about it, and then you. Um, think of your angle and then you think of who you're going to interview what are your sources and then you interview them and you write the article so it's pretty much the same but obviously the actual like writing in the Vietnamese language is is different from the, the from writing in English um, and yeah I struggle more with writing in Vietnamese honestly despite um, you know pretty much being educated in the Vietnamese public school system um, for eight years, I still, um, I, when I first started out, I was a little bit self-conscious about like, oh, is my writing, like, does, does it sound westernized? Because I started mm. writing articles in English. Um, but then I think the more I did it, the more I just learned and, and became more confident in both languages. And... No, I, I find it interesting because I, I mean, I, I don't write a lot, but from time to time, I write some articles. Or sometimes people mm -hmm. ask me to write articles. Mm -hmm. And last time I had to write something in French. Mm -hmm. I think I, I mostly write only in English as well. Uh, yeah. So I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I, I, most of the words are like, you know, the beauty, I mean, beautiful sentence, like, expressions yeah. i like i have it in english yeah. only so then i'm like yeah. trying to put it in french it doesn't work at all oh yeah no actually that's also uh i still write more um i think it also has to do with how like the english language wor works versus how the vietnamese language works but um the really veteran vietnamese journalists that i look up to they have so many beautiful ways of expressing things that mm. I can never do. Um, and a lot of it is, there is an expectation um, in the Vietnamese press that even when you're writing journalistically, the writing has to be beautiful. <laughs> like it's pretty common to see, you know, descriptions of like when someone brings up a a source that they interviewed you could see like descriptions of what the person was wearing or like how their hands look like and things like that <laughs> and I don't do that stuff in my writing but I guess I try to make it up <laughs> by other ways um so I think the gist of it is like as long as you have a good topic and you're able to interview interesting sources and um you know you communicate in a way that people can understand um people are willing to overlook the lack of flowery <laughs> flowery mm. language yeah in my writing i i read a few of your i mean newsletter but also articles mm -hmm. and i think i mean coming back to what you said you try to humanize climate change stories mm -hmm. i really like your i mean i don't know if it's a conscious style or if any everyone does that actually but i, I like you always start with the story of someone in the yeah, chapeau mm -hmm. when like you were always writing like this or when did you realize that you wanted to write like this huh that's a good question i mean 
yeah, in the shuffle or, or in English, I usually call it the lead. But there are a couple of different ways of doing it. There's the dry way of just, you know, introducing the topic um, or introducing some stats. Uh, but I always found it like as a reader, more engaging to um, read articles that start with a person you feel like the issue is more humanized. Um, it is tricky, though, because you also don't want to get too much into one person's story because in order for um, whatever point you're making to be convincing, it has to you have to have multiple sources and be backed up by facts and figures as well. Um, but, yeah, when I have the opportunity of finding one good source that can, I can use as the lead, I try to do so. Mm. in a succinct way I think I learned that also at my school newspaper where especially with the more with the longer articles that we write like the investigative you know long form articles it's more effective to start with the with a person Um, I've also written articles that are just you know talking about an event or talking about more straightforward for articles that are less than 700 words I usually don't start with a person but articles longer than 900 like 900 to 1500 or longer I usually do if I can Mm. yeah and and coming back to climate tracker so look the the first time you engage with them was when they sent you to Poland or did you do anything no, with them before, before that actually because in 2018 um they also were running <laughs> so I knew about climate tracker actually through um a student organization that I co-founded um that was doing a lot of organizing debate tournaments um and just in general getting high school and, and middle school kids in Vietnam to think about social issues more critically. Um, and then I think in 2018, we posted a series um, of articles. Other people wrote this, but um, yeah, I was just sort of creating the, the um, content plan for the year, but trying to get other people write about um, a bunch of issues, including the environment. So then in 2018, Climate Tracker was specifically looking for young writers and young journalists from Vietnam um, to apply for an opportunity to cover the um, like intercessional for COP in Bonn. So they one of the program officers actually reached out to um, the, the Facebook page that I co-managed. And then I was like checking the inbox and then I realized that there was this opportunity. And then I sort of read more about climate tracker. I read more about um, what sort of opportunities they were offering. And then um, the program officer, Arthur was his name. He, he actually was like, yeah, can you guys like help us promote this um, on your fan page or something? And we were like, and I was like, yeah, sure. We can promote it. And then dutifully we, we did, but I don't think, I don't know if um, other people applied because they saw the post on like my organization's fan page, but I definitely applied. <laughs> and um, yeah, so long story short, they end up picking someone else, but I, for some reason they liked my article a lot and they decided to create a second prize um, for their runner up. And then Arthur um, became my mentor for a three month 
like online fellowship where I would write two articles per month. Yeah, two articles per month for three months. Um, it was from, I think, March to June 2018. Um, and I had a terrific time. Arthur was a terrific mentor and he really helped me with the pitching process um, because even though I had some contacts, I was still struggling a little bit to pitch. Um, and just like overall tackling the topic of climate change um, in a way that would resonate with people. And yeah, I became hooked with Climate Tracker <laughs> from that opportunity. And then um, in December of that same year was COP. Um, and I applied for that opportunity. And then long story short, I um, was able to go <laughs> as their youngest um, fellow at COP. How do you feel? How did you, how, how did you feel and how do you feel now if you think about it? that you've been the youngest uh, climate tracker fellow ever. <laughs> I still feel like it's magical, like how it happened, because actually it wasn't straight, as straightforward as I just said. Um, there were a couple of things. I did think that I wouldn't be able to go. Um, even after, you know, they selected um, the fellows and they did interviews and everything. But then... Um, oh my god I, I, <laughs> it was a very very long story but long story short was I um, couldn't because Climate Tracker has very limited badges for COP um, so for people who don't know at, at COP which is the UN Climate Change Conference or Conference of the Parties of the UNFCCC they hand out badges um, for NGOs And they also hand out like separately their press badges um, for professional journalists who are affiliated with newsrooms. And so Climate Tracker had a very limited number of badges that they had as an NGO, I think. Pretty much only would cover their staff um, and like one or two unaffiliated journalists. And then uh, most of the team, it was... 11 people who, who were fellows um, during that conference, but most of them were staff writers um, for very big um, professional newsrooms in their respective countries. So they had no problem at all in getting the badges after, you know, Climate Tracker um, confirmed them as new fellows. But Climate Tracker, basically... Climate Tracker was like, we would love to have you as part of this team, except we don't have any badges to spare. So you can come with us if you can somehow get a badge. <laughs> And so I like emailed, I mass emailed sort of, there, there was a list of NGOs who were qualified for badges. And then I just emailed like a hundred of them in one day. And I was like, I really... Um, I'm covering this conference with Climate Tracker and here are the different, you know, news outlets in Vietnam that I'm pitching to and yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you have a spare badge basically? And then um, I sort of had very little hope that someone would get back to me because it is very, most organizations only have a couple and they don't have any spares, but then um, somehow one of the organizations I contacted was responsible for, 
badges in the home state of California. Um, or they were called the Climate Reserve, I think. Um, God, yeah, I was. I had no like affiliation with them at all. <laughs> but I was, and but but I emailed them, and then I guess they were impressed by what I've done, what I was trying to do. Um, so they were like, "Yeah, we have a couple of spare badges for the first week, um, if you want to go, because it's a two-week conference." So I managed to get a badge from that organization, although I was going with Climate Tracker. And then when I did the visa interview for it to get a Schengen visa, because the conference was in Poland, the woman at the embassy was so confused because. I was only 16 at the time. I was a minor. And then they nearly didn't let me go because they were like, okay, so who are your guardians? And I was like, uh, they're in Vietnam. <laughs> and then they were like, okay, so so do your guardians allow you to travel? And I was like, yeah, but they're not here. So if you want to talk to my guardians, you can. So I thought I couldn't go like, a couple of times there were more incidents that happened because it was so unusual. Their time and tracker's youngest fellow before that was 18, um, Lena, who's also amazing. But she was, I think, of like considered an adult, so it was easier for her. And um, yeah, I still think it's pretty magical that I end up being able to join Climate Tracker for the first week of COP. And then obviously the actual like trying to cover all these events um, and oh my god trying to interview the Vietnamese delegation was another story because I didn't have a press batch so I couldn't join in the official press conferences so in order to get quotes I would literally have to walk up to people who had the like um, delegation badge because they were all color-coded so I would like walk around and looking for people who looked Southeast Asian and had the color for like head of delegation or delegation. Um, And it took me like maybe two days in order to find a Vietnamese delegation, but I finally managed to um, find them. It was also easier for me because actually there were not any, or maybe there were one or two, but there were not a lot of um, Vietnamese staff writers who would cover these conferences anyway. Um, so I think that helped with, you know, how when I actually found them, the, the delegates were actually more willing to talk to me than I thought, like given that I was an, a, a staff writer. Um, but I actually, you remember Mr. Tan from, yes, you guys invited him. So yeah, that's, I first um, walked up to him, like out of nowhere and was like, Hello, I am writing. <laughs> um, uh, like I'm writing as a freelancer for like Vietnam. Um, wait, which one did I write about Mr. Tan for? It was Vietnam News, I think. Yeah, and then he, um, yeah, he. I I was able to interview him twice and also attend one of the like events that he was speaking at during COP. And um, overall, I think I wrote 10, something like, because I don't quite remember because a lot of my articles were, some, some of them were pretty short. And then there were 
two longer ones um, that I'm very proud of, one of which was about the concept of just transition um, in Vietnam. And then the other one was about um, how Vietnam is one of the top 10 countries affected. It was the seventh most affected country um, by climate change, according to German Watch Index. Um, and German Watch is an NGO that they re- release uh, an index every year, um, ranking to different countries. And then I wrote an article about that, but also incorporating quotes from Mr. Tan about what um, the government was doing. Um, so those were my two proudest articles from that conference. But there were also, yes, yeah, six or seven more um, shorter, just like event news event type articles um, that I managed to get published. But overall, it was a very oh, there was one more article um, that wasn't specifically about Vietnam, but I got to interview Pan Mao Zai, who was um, chair of the first working group of the IPCC. Um, so he's a physicist and scientist from China um, and I had a conversation with him about um, what IPCC because 2018 was also when the IPCC 1.5 report came out so a lot of the conversations um, at COP that year was about that report so I was able to t- ask um, Pat Mozai about what um, the report meant for developing countries like Vietnam, and that one was published on Echo Business, which is a, a more regional outlet. But yeah, those were my three proudest articles. And I still think of COP24 as like that one week where I learned more about climate change and climate policy than pretty much any other time in my life. And um, also, I think further cemented my... Um, realization that a young person can have an impact um, if one tries hard enough like and relying on you know what are your skill sets and what are the things that you can bring to the table that would fit the context of how advocacy can work in your country yeah yeah no that's so cool I, I actually I have I want to say so many things right now. I have to choose. Uh, but maybe, yeah, no, I think from all the stories that you have been telling me, I think you, for me, it was a perfect example of, of, I'm sure you are scared of what I'm going to say. No, but of, uh, you know, your act, like active youth, like someone who no work. So yeah, for me, a perfect example of, no, I feel like from what you say, you never You've never been given, you know, opportunities on yeah. the plate, right? You always had to yeah. go for it, to be hungry for it. But, you know, when you were going for it, most of them happened also randomly. You know, like yeah. from yeah. being aware of the boarding <laughs> school in the US, being aware of Climate Tracker. But it happened randomly because you, you know, you forced it by going to so much event, by co-founding this organization. If you didn't do that, like, these random opportunities will not come. And for me, it's a perfect example of hard work and and yeah, you know, like it's, as you said, you you were not given these things on the plate. You had to look for it. And for me, it's yeah. such beautiful stories. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs> thank you. I actually still need to be comfortable with the fact of my age <laughs> because even at um, college, when I when I tried to interview anyone, like, or when I was pitching articles, I never told people how young I was. 
I mean, if anyone asked, I would have told them, but like, I very much tried and hoped that they would not ask. I'm actually still not sure if Mr. Thun knows how old I am. He probably does. <laughs> but up until I met him again um, at the youth, like, national rights shop, right shop that UNDP Vietnam organized in December. And then the first thing he asked me was like, I, oh, like, which newspaper are you writing for now? <laughs> I think he thought I was like a professional staff writer <laughs> for a newspaper. And I was like, uh, <laughs> I'm working for an NGO called Climate Tracker now. <laughs> I changed industry. <laughs> now I'm with Climate Tracker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I changed industries. Um, I, I, do you see your, so now you're 18? Do you see that I'm, as a... Yes, I'm 18. Turning 19. Soon. Okay. When? <laughs> March 6th. Okay. Do you see that as a... In, in, in the context of the work you're doing mm-hmm. and the people you're meeting, do you see that as a... I mean, do you see that as a strength mm. or not as a strength mm. to be almost That's 19? Good question. Yeah. I simultaneously feel too young and too old at the same time in <laughs> a lot of the things I do. Um, it can be a limitation, um, but I think a lot of the times when like, I view it as a limitation, it becomes one because I think of it that way like I have been in a lot of situations especially in Vietnam because you know in Vietnam there's no I and you pronoun so whenever you meet someone it's very normal for Mm. people to be the first thing they ask you unless you know when I'm at I was at COP and just interviewed people right but usually in other circumstances like when I'm organizing um, training workshops for climate tracker in Vietnam when um, I try to work with partners or partner organizations in Vietnam, the first thing they would ask you is, how old are you? And it's considered completely normal here because people are just literally trying to figure out what pronoun to use when they're talking with you. Um, but then that makes me feel really uncomfortable, especially in situations where I have to talk um, and have to lead a three-day workshop um, with bunch of journalists in Vietnam who are um, mostly in their late 20s, early 30s, some of them in their late 30s. And then they'd be like, how old are you? And I'd be like, "Um, that's a secret for the last day of the workshop. (laughs) Uh, So, and then I would always be very self-conscious because I was like, do I like seem childish or do I seem young? Can people tell that I'm very young? Um, when I'm speaking and as always sort of like yeah not like a hundred percent confident in those situations and and afraid of messing up and being judged um, for messing up and I also like always wanted because Climate Tracker really believed in me and I'm very grateful for the type of opportunities and the type of projects that they allowed me to work on. Um, But like pretty much after COP24, um, Chris, who is the director, um, 
called me up and was like, "Hey, you do want to work for us?" And I was like, "Okay." <laughs> and um, I wanted to do a good job because I was o- the only like Vietnamese representative of Climate Tracker when I was running projects in Vietnam, and I didn't want. I was like always very scared of people making assumptions about, oh, like Climate Tracker is like. I don't want people to think that Climate Tracker is somehow like unprofessional for you know having an 18-year-old like run all of these events and programs. Um, yeah, so I think that's where my age really added like more stress when I was trying to do things. Um, I guess it could also be a strength um, because. I felt like I have more time to try, to do different things and learn about things um, than maybe I would like further down the line. But it's also scary because like now that I'm starting college too, and I'm like, oh my god, I feel so old. I have to choose a major soon. <laughs> yeah, um, but I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, that's that was. Uh... Beyond my expectations, <laughs> but but on on that like did because you said you were afraid that people judge you or think that you will mess up. Mm-hmm. Did you get any negative reactions from people mm-hmm. when you said I'm sixteen, seventeen, eighteen? Did some people? Because I I I I can really I mean I I spoke with some you no. Know, young activists and they tell mm-hmm. me yeah you know i want to speak to political leader whoever they see mm-hmm. that i'm 16 they just stop respecting me yeah or they don't care about what i say did yeah. you face these situations yes um especially like after the workshops <laughs> when <laughs> I had to answer the question or um, people also stop me on social media like you did. And it's, I don't hide, I don't try to hide the fact that I'm, you know, young. So if people really stop, they can find out pretty easily. Um, so I've had people say things like, I mean, some, some things are just patronizing. It's not dismissive, but people say things like, oh, like when I was your age, I was only like, I don't know, like I didn't know anything. (laughs) And like, yeah, things like that makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Um, And then some people would- I uh, I always do that. (laughs) Okay, I should stop. (laughs) Like, like, uh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) No, like like this, uh, oh, when I was your age, I was just playing video games. I- (laughs) Well, I don't have bad intentions, but if it makes people uncomfortable, then maybe I should stop. Yeah, because I don't know. It, it just <laughs> makes me feel like you're saying, oh, I'm too young to be doing serious things. No, I for me, I, 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 my intention is really, I say that because I'm impressed. Not to say you should go back to play video games, but more to say that's so cool that you are doing this at 18. You are much more advanced than who I was at 18. I, I say it this way mm. more than you should play with. Like, but I, I, yeah, maybe that's not why, how people feel it. I don't know. But that's a good thing. But I, hopefully I didn't say that to you when you first <laughs> <read>. <laughs> No, it's okay. I've gotten used to it. Um, and 
yeah like some people have said things like oh then why did climate tracker like hire you <laughs> or like why did that mm. partner because usually my in my workshops i would be working with um a couple of p- local partners as well and then people would be like then why did the partner bring you on <laughs> i've had someone say that um and it was a little bit like okay <laughs> like, i hope and then i i try to think of it as like mm, Because usually I've I've never had a bad review for the project itself, you know, from the journalists who participated. Um, so I've never had people say, "Oh, like that was a waste of my time. I didn't learn anything," or or things like that. It's always been pretty decent to pretty great reviews. Um, so I've always thought of it as okay, like. At the end of the day, I don't think knowing about my age affected their overall experience of um, whatever it was I was trying to organize for them. So as long as they took away things from it, um, I don't, I shouldn't be upset by whether they recognize it as my work or um, the work of you know my partners or older people. So, yeah. Yeah. No. Definitely. I mean, I think you know. Especially if you say it after the workshop, I think people should judge you not on your age, but on the quality of the workshop, on yeah. the content of what you're writing. So yeah, for me, I still find it even sad that people still judge you on your age after the workshop because they should just realize, oh wow, she's so young, but the workshop was so amazing. Wow, you know, not uh, not, not something else. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, I well, we we're still only when you are sixteen, seventeen. Uh, so I still have so many questions, but I'm also conscious of time. I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, okay, so I, I think just to give you an idea, I have one, I, maybe one last question on the UNDPM report. One. F- One more question about Harvard. <laughs> Very curious, and then uh, the final three questions I always ask to everyone. Okay, so sounds good. Five more questions. Yes. Um, yeah. So about the uh, report, uh, like we part of the climate dialogue, we ask you to share a bit, but you only had <laughs> very pressurized, limited time. So I would love. You could share a bit about the report that you are leading with uh, UNDP mm-hmm. Vietnam, which was about identifying the bottlenecks for young Vietnamese climate activists. Mm-hmm. You could share, yeah, a bit about the experience, but also what have you learned through all the interviews that could help young Vietnamese active, I mean, young people to take action for the climate. Yeah, so actually, the report has three main sections. Um, the first one is. Um, a stakeholding sort of sorry no that's not a word um, <laughs> <laughs> stock taking I've been talking for too long um, stock taking <laughs> of existing projects um, so introducing the most impressive youth um, initiatives in different in four areas of climate action so mitigation adaptation natural na- nature based solutions and climate policy and then the second part is to identify the bottlenecks like you mentioned and then the third part is to um, come up with accelerators and a roadmap for 2021 and the next four years um, as well as recommendations for stakeholders so I think of it as like you know what we're doing well what we're struggling with and what should we do next 
um, three main parts. And the process for writing that, I um, was tremendously lucky to uh, be the lead reporter for that report. So I got to attend the National Write Shop that UNDP Vietnam organized in December of 2020. I met um, 20 of the most some of the most amazing climate advocates, um, youth climate advocates in Vietnam from all three regions of the country. And um, together we had some pretty um, productive like brainstorming sessions throughout the three days. Um, the four bottlenecks that uh, we realized most youth projects encounter. And we also ran a survey afterwards to see if, um, you know, more quantitative data would hold up to, Um, this, but basically the major bottlenecks were um, financial constraints, which made sense because a lot of most of these youth organizations aren't like registered NGOs. Um, so it's hard for them to you know, have a steady source of operating revenue. So it's very like project to project. Um, and the second largest obstacle was um, engaging with stakeholders. A lot of people raised Um, stories of how even though um, through the dialogue and through other like opportunities to engage with people like Mr. Tan and um, um, individuals, the national government in um, the Ministry of Nat uh, Natural Resources and Environment Monterey in Vietnam, who were very supportive of the idea of youth advocacy for climate and youth initiatives Um, for climate action, when you come down to the local levels, it's not always the same story. Um, so, like, difficulty engaging with local government and um, even, like, school officials and, um, in general, people that needed to support a project was the second biggest um, bottleneck. And then the third one had to do with skills, Um, skills like how to write a budget proposal, how to manage a project, how to deal with human resource issues. Um, and then the fourth bottleneck that came up was um, access to technology because some of the um, projects um, would really benefit from you know, better use of technology. So those were the four main bottlenecks that we saw. And then... From that on, we um, came up with 10 different accelerators. Um, probably don't have time to go over all of them, but um, the two main ones um, that would apply to a lot of the bottlenecks um, and different fields of action that we identified um, would be organizing a youth climate network in Vietnam. So that network has come into existence. It's called YNET. So YNET uh, stands for Youth for um, Climate Action Network. So the UNDP Vietnam program was called Youth for Climate Action. And then um, the youth from that program, like, you know, created a network. So it's called YNET because of that. And yeah, we're, um, YNET has a lot of um, plans for this year. So I'm very excited about what's going to come from the network and um, more broadly the report. And then the second um, accelerator that we proposed was a climate learning hub. Um, so 
that would be a centralized hub of information in Vietnamese and hopefully some ethnic minority languages as well um, that would really provide like interactive and understandable um, briefs on different climate issues as well as updates on climate policy in Vietnam. So those are the two accelerators, um, the three like biggest ones. And then, yeah, we also have stakeholder um, recommendations for our stakeholders and how best um, they can support further youth action. So I'm very proud of the report. It's currently in final stages of editing, um, although I am not very sure when it will be <laughs> officially presented to, to the public um, because that also depends on UNDP Vietnam. But um, whenever that happens, I hope that a lot of people read it, um, especially youth as um, the stakeholders that we hope to engage with as well. It's, you wrote it? It will be written in two languages, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. It's been, okay. Yes, it's been written in two languages. Um, yeah, I'm okay. currently putting in final edits on the English version because we, we finished the Vietnamese one first and then um, final edits on the English one. Okay, can't wait to read it. Uh, no, really. Uh, especially since I read somewhere that <laughs> the perfect opportunity to name drop this, to drop this, that you were a perfectionist, perfectionist. So you were always trying to get the perfect sentence. And, you know, I do that too. Maybe not at the same level, but I, I can completely feel you. Uh, mm -hmm. If there is one word I'm not satisfied with, I will not publish. <laughs> so I'll just wait until I have an idea of which better word. Um, It's pretty hard to be a perfectionist when you're writing a 60-page report, though. I gotta say that. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, you need a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but cool, yeah, no, if, yeah, I mean, when it's uh, online, I can put the link as well in the notes of episodes so that it's easy to find. Yay. And uh, and we're also virtually clapping. We cannot see that in the podcast. Um, yeah, and and... Also, you know, yeah, so I wanted to ask you about Harvard. Um, okay. Here it goes. <laughs> <laughs> no, because you know Harvard, you know, it's like, you know, this, uh, <laughs> it's pretty much, I mean, this is how I see Harvard is like, yeah, pretty much everyone knows Harvard and pretty much everyone has an idea of what Harvard is, yeah. whether it's from movies, from the social network movie, <laughs> from what. So I just wondered, was it, was it always your goal? To be no. in Harvard? Okay. No. <laughs> This is kind of cringy, but um, I did read, when I was a kid, I read, I don't know what the English translation would be, but basically there was this Chinese kid who, well, she's older now, but who got into Harvard in the 90s and wrote a whole book about it called, like, I want to go to Harvard to study econ or something like that. And then... Her book was actually credited for the a huge boom in applicants from China because before that, I mean, in some ways it is a good thing, right? Because before that, people didn't think that undergraduate studies in the U.S. for international students was possible or affordable. Um, it wasn't a widely known fact that private um, colleges and private high schools offer um, like privately sponsored uh, financial assistance scholarships 
Um, so after that book, a bunch of people from China like applied, and then it um, was translated into Vietnamese and was sort of a sensation when it came out. Um, but I don't know. I think I read it and I was like, okay, cool. It it definitely mm, was part of like fueling my dream of overall like wanting to study abroad. Um, but I wasn't like, I have to get into Harvard or my life is meaningless, you know? <laughs> and um, especially when I was in high school, um, we were very lucky to be exposed because it's a preparatory school. We were exposed to a lot of, um, you know, just like admission officers from um, different colleges around the U.S., And I realized, yeah, there were so many good colleges um, around. And um, I sort of had a hard time, actually, choosing. So how it works in the U.S. is you apply. Uh, the process officially starts, like, the summer before your, your senior, like, last year of high school, 12th grade. Um, and then you send in the application um, if you want to apply early. Um, which is usually people apply early to their like top choice school. Um, you apply in uh, the deadline is November of your senior year. So then up until like the end of my junior year or 11th grade, um, I wasn't sure wh what my top school would be. Um, although I had a vague idea that I really wanted, you know, the East Coast, like, um, liberal arts universities but not too small like I wanted um, also to have exposure to people who are in graduate school and professional school like in the same university um, and then actually um, yeah a lot of things tipped the scale in favor of Harvard well I really I've always you know I mean I have I visited Harvard a couple of times before that because my school was like pretty close to Boston um, and I always really like Harvard but also because if you put a school as your top school like you have a higher chance of getting into that school than if you were apply to apply like in the later round and I was just very scared because I didn't want to have a choice that was like unrealistic um, But yeah, I think over the summer, I really thought more about the program that I would want to study. And then um, actually, I read a book called Merchants of Doubt. Um, if you haven't heard of it, it's a terrific, terrific book about um, climate change, but more specifically how um, the big polluters, especially in the U.S., have worked to fuel climate denialism over the years. I was very impressed about how the issue was presented. It was like a mix of very well-researched history and um, political science and science and just a wonderful book. And then I realized one of the co-authors, um, Naomi Oreskes, is a professor at Harvard. And then I assumed that she would be teaching maybe like environmental science or um, something, you know, more specifically related to the topic of the book then I realized that she was in the history of science department which really um intrigued me because I was like what <laughs> history of science <laughs> like it I've never really heard of that major before 
um, and didn't quite know what it was. But then over the summer, I did more research and then I sort of realized it was the perfect one for me because the idea is you choose one science field um, that you're really passionate about and you have to take advanced courses and do research in that field. Um, but then you also have to back it up with a lot of history courses and um, like social science courses. And the idea is to get a well-rounded um, overview of how that a particular science field um, has affected society and vice versa over time while getting a good technical background in that science field. Um, and Harvard was, I think, the first school to offer it as an undergraduate um, degree and um, has a reputation for you know, it being um, one of their strong programs. And there were not a lot of schools who offered the same program. It was between Harvard, Yale, and, and University of Chicago, um, but yeah, and then I really love Boston as well. And I, um, had friends who went to Harvard and stayed with, over with them because for the shorter breaks, I don't go home. It's too long of a flight. So I would crash their dorms in Harvard. One of the things that like, I think people have in mind when they think about Harvard is it's a very, you know, uptight institution and people are full of themselves and, you know too like obnoxious and whatnot and I also thought so at first um which was one of the reasons like Harvard wasn't always my dream school but then I also crashed a friend's dorm like Thanksgiving no earlier in that like in October I think of of um my senior year so pretty much like a month and a half before the deadline for apps were due and then I yeah I just realized people at least I knew some people who were just so friendly and didn't let the fact of going to Harvard like get to them you know what I mean so um yeah I think getting to know the community was also a big factor in my decision and no I think it's interesting because I what is in the case of France or I don't know in other countries. I, it's a question I should ask more. Uh, you know, the top schools, many people want to go there mm-hmm. just because it's a top school. Yeah. But, you know, I felt like you really, it's not, I mean, it's because it's a top school, but for a specific topic that you really yeah. care about. And yeah. and on that, yeah, I wonder, you know, you, you mentioned about all your future goals. You also, I I personally think that you achieved a lot at 18. And now I'm scared of what I should say. Oh, uh, yeah. But I wonder like where, what, what else do you want to do? And mm. simple question, how, where do you see yourself when you are 28? Oh my God. In 10 years. Okay. So I really want to go back to doing science um, because actually in high school, aside from, you know, being involved with climate tracker and writing a lot, I also did um, bio research, um, some like molecular bio stuff to do with genetics. And also I did a project. Um, I was part of a 
team, like university team in Vietnam, where I was like interning at a lab um, that worked on trying to identify like different genes in coconuts that could contribute to greater um, tolerance um, of salinity, which would um, is becoming very important given, you know, like salt intrusion in the Mekong Delta in Vietnam. Um, but yeah, long story short, I think for my gap year, I have um, done a lot more in terms of, you know, gaining experience working um, full, well, not full time, but a lot of hours for Climate Tracker um, and running a lot of interesting projects for them and then writing a report for UNDP. Um, so it's a lot of like community engagement and um, NGO work, um, which I've learned a lot from, but I'm, I think I'm in a place where I miss you know, being in a more academic environment and doing science and finding out new things. Um, so I, yeah, definitely will try to um, get into a lab um, when I go to school, when I start school. Um, I'm currently very, my work with Climate Tracker has made me really interested in energy um, because obviously energy is one of the huge problems that people are trying to solve to combat climate change, right? And still meet the demands of the developing world, especially. Um, so it's a huge like, question that I have so many potential answers, but <laughs> I almost regret, because out of the sciences um, that I did in high school, I was a lot better at, at uh, bio and chem than I was at physics so I also want to get a better grasp of like the physics behind energy and um, like energy planning and electrical planning like electricity grids um, so that's the short-term goal uh, and then in, at 28 where do I see myself 28 would be 10 years from now um, hmm one possibility that I have recently contemplated is I want to get, I'm interested in getting a law degree in the U.S., um, which in the U.S. you don't study law as a bachelor's degree. So you um, get another undergrad degree and people who want to go into environmental law, for example, or um, legal consulting in the life science field usually get a science like undergrad degree like either a bachelor of science or just like a, a more science field and then they go to work in that field um, for two to three years and then they go back to school for law school um, for three years so I'm contemplating that route um, because I think I would very um, in much enjoy like doing legal work um, that helps the environment and policy work that helps the environment. But yeah, I think getting a policy degree is a little bit harder to, I don't know, it, it feels a little bit more boxed in than a law degree. Um, but I'm sure my thinking would change a lot as well. If anything in the past four years have taught me, it's that like, you can't really plan your life even for, you know, four years, let alone 10 years. Um, it's more about 
having a set of, I guess, principles um, and something you care about, which for me, like, I'm very grateful, I guess, in a way that I um, have, like, committed myself to, you know, caring about climate change and wanting to do something about it. And then sort of, yeah, trying to be open to various opportunities that relate to that field and see where you best fit into the story. That's what I hope to be doing. Because again, like, if you had asked me five years ago, if I saw myself, you know, being a climate journalist and um, having a lot of experience with climate tracker and you know ngo work i would i don't think i would have foreseen that um you Mm. know but sort of like things fell into place randomly but because i set out with a certain like vague idea of what are the things i want to do so i think that's what i'll continue doing for 10 years and hopefully in 10 years i'll be at a place where i want to be although i do want to say that by 28 i really hope that i've had experience working in somewhere that's not the us or vietnam um go yeah. to france come to france uh, i'm thinking more like senegal i <laughs> think <laughs> <laughs> i told you this but yeah i wanted to um travel there and work for some NGO or volunteer opportunities um, in Senegal and Madagascar, like during my gap year, which mm. has not happened because of COVID. Um, but I think actually COP24 was when I really had exposure and could meet a lot of youth from Africa. And um, I mean, I don't know if I had like, any prior biases or conceptions but I just you know I never had that opportunity to meet people like that before and that it really like I was very impressed with how amazing the people I got to meet were um and just yeah I think ever since then I've had this like dream of Mm. (laughs) getting to work in Africa um and specifically know the countries that are affected by climate change but also where a lot of cool things are happening um to address that um so yeah hopefully i've done that by 28 cool so basically to summarize it you will be at the intersection of I guess, climate journalism youth engagement policy research science they go in Africa. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere, something like this. Let's see how it unfolds. Yes, let's see how it unfolds. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, but I just, I'm still very passionate about the developing like countries. Um, I, I know it's a rather dated term because, I mean, you know, it can be used in a pejorative way, but mm. just in the countries where things are still not set in stone in terms of how the system works and the legal system and the policy system. And um, yeah, where there are so many potential, but also so many things that could be done um, to better address climate change. And typically these are also the countries most affected by climate change, right? Where there's a huge stake. So Mm. um, yeah, I don't know about want to go back to Vietnam yet by 28. 
um but i do want to go back to vietnam eventually as well at some point we'll see at some point okay and so we spoke about the 10 year <laughs> into the future now I have a deeper question even <laughs> if you look at your whole lifetime uh, <laughs> how is getting worse and worse <laughs> so how it, how would you like people to remember you uh, or to know you for mm. well that's actually a hard question what do I want people to remember me for well I think most people know me for climate journalism, right? <laughs> as, what we've, as we've seen from the, like, yeah, the regional dialogue, Vietnamese girl who, <laughs> who is a climate journalist, although I don't remember her name. Um, and, I, you know, I am proud of that association. Um, I think I've been doing it for a while, not a tremendously long time, but it's something I do feel proud of for having had some sort of impact um and i hmm, i guess just a young person who is trying to connect all of the dots and um and figure out how to best deal with climate change and also all of the challenges that we are facing today. Um, yeah, I also want people to remember me as someone who is very rooted in Vietnam, um, in Saigon, in Vietnam, and in ASEAN, but also wants to learn more from the global community and it's like because climate change is such a global like problem, right? Or an issue that affects everyone. So, yeah. No, I used to the term global citizen. I have a very like love hate relationship with it because hmm, I think global citizen also there's a certain negative connotation um, that has to do with like privilege um, and a certain like disassociation with like where you're coming from um, because a lot of mm, the international students that um, I went to school with in the U.S. like had two or three different passports, you know, didn't really speak the language that their parents speak or um, the place where they grew up in and like wanted to be a global citizen in the sense of, I guess like mostly wanting to um, find opportunities within the developed like occidental Western context, if you know what I mean. Um, it's a little bit hard to concretely express, but yeah, I, I do think there's a lot of value in being open to, you know, working anywhere and contributing to, projects in a lot of different places and learning from people from a lot of communities but I also want to be remembered as someone who is grounded in um, being Vietnamese um, yeah so <laughs> I guess I, I am grateful for um, you know even though I hadn't planned it to be this way I am grateful for spending this year in Vietnam after four years um, 
being away most of the time. Yeah, and to answer yeah. your first first question, yes, there is from Saigon in your bio. Oh, okay, uh, so it's part <laughs> of the first thing. So freelance writer and journal from Saigon. Uh, okay. Even with uh, glad I put that. <laughs> Zhou Zhou Huian, so, so oh, correctly yes. written. <laughs> <laughs> Correct Vietnamese. Um, so my last question for you uh, mm-hmm. is. So I change it a bit. Usually I ask, how would you describe yourself in three hashtags? Mm. But for you, uh, you have a special one because okay. you have so many hashtags already on your, on your bio. Uh, I would oh. say because you said you the last time you updated it was seven months ago. Mm-hmm. So if you had to update it today, mm. what new term would you add? Ooh. Can I look? <laughs> Let Just me share, with, share it with you on the chat. I, ha- I have it in front of me. Yeah, I can open it. Oh, here we go. Oh, I wanted to ask a question about the virtual investor, but I don't think we have time for another time. <laughs> for another time. Hmm. What would I add now? You know, I think I like the list as it is. Is that an okay answer? <laughs> okay, yeah. No, I mean, uh, that's good. Yeah. It's an okay answer. Yeah, for sure. If, not, if it's comprehensive already, then <laughs> it's good. Yeah, although uh, I guess in a couple of months, I'd have to update it with my college. Because I, I won't be <laughs> without an academic affiliation anymore. Well, you um, could add Ynet, Harvard. Yeah. That's pretty cool to add as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I try to not throw in... Hmm. I, I'm trying to think of a good way to... Because I don't want to just write... Why not? Because people might understand what that means. Or like even the full name. Um, so I do want, like, I guess in, the, in this list, it's not as obvious that um, I identify as a youth climate advocate. Um, but being the poetic person that I am, I don't want to just write youth climate advocate. Mm. <laughs> so I'll think about that and get back to you. Okay, yeah, send me yeah. The, the updated version when, when you update it. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. No, because actually, um, I think in the past, maybe like four months, five months, four months, I've um, like affiliated myself as a youth climate advocate more than I did previously because I did have a phase where I sort of wanted to not be seen as a youth. Mm. Like, even when, you know, like when I was going to COP24, I was so desperate for people to take me seriously. And in my work for Climate Tracker, I really wanted people to take me seriously that I identified as, you know, freelance writer and journal and like Climate Tracker person from Saigon rather than youth climate advocate from Saigon. Um, 
Yeah, because I was afraid that that you know being so um, obviously a youth, I guess, um, could like we talk about this, right? Like the assumptions that people make, um, but definitely you know the my engagement with UNDP Vietnam and the Youth for Climate Network recently has um, re like convinced me that yes I can embrace my youth identity mm-hmm. and it still works out <laughs> so yeah cool yeah no that's an interest I actually yeah I didn't think about this when reading your bio but now that you say it yeah it doesn't mm-hmm. if people doesn't, don't know you they will yeah. mostly say you are very yeah that's a poetic person you know <laughs> yeah but um no cool so yeah no thank you so much um this is my final real final question but where can uh people find you um if they want to speak to you learn more about what you've been doing so far read what is one article that you wrote that you want everyone Mm. to read One article I've written that I want everyone to read. I have a lot of articles that I like. (laughs) Um, The Just Transition article that I wrote from from COP would be pretty high up on the list. Um, There's also the the article I wrote about Lomang um, coal-fired power plant and the um, movement to stop it in Vietnam. Um, that was one of my first articles. I was really—it's the article I talked about in the in the article that you read. Um, I'm very proud of it. Although it was written earlier in my like climate journalism career, um, so if I were to do it now, I'd do it differently. Mm. Um, but I guess people can read that one as well. <laughs> it's an important issue. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. And, and then if people want to find me, I can be found via very many, very many channels. Um, although, like, depending on where people are, I have Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, so <laughs> and WhatsApp. So I think that covers everything. But yeah, my you have email, pretty much everything. <laughs> yeah, I have pretty much everything. Because I work with people who use, like, one of those you know mm. so but my email is my dot nxhuang at gmail.com um and if people i think my website probably still has although i need to update the like gap year newsletters part of it but it has a pretty comprehensive list of stuff i've written um so you can find out my fi- Find my website if you searched hmm. my Huang portfolio.wordpress.com. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, yes. My Huang There you go. <laughs> no, because I did have um I did have a shortened like URL um that I subs- like I paid for on WordPress, but I don't think that one is working anymore. But yeah, I think myhanportfolio.wordpress.com probably works best. Okay, 
course, I'll put everything that you just mentioned and I'll try to find the top three, top two articles. Uh, oh, oh I, I will just ask you <laughs> for the links. Um, no, thank you so much. I think uh, oh. for me, that was... Uh... Yeah, go ahead. The link to the articles are on the homepage of my website. Okay, the website perfect. that I just read out. Perfect. Yeah, so um, you go down, like bylines, journalism. There oh, yeah, are, with... Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, with... Yeah, I remember with all your poems as well. Yeah. Um, so the Just Transition one that I mentioned is called uh, Fighting a Just Transition as Vietnam Confronts Climate Change. And then the coal plant article is called Highlighting the Downside of Thermal Power. Perfect. Cool. Yes. Um, so, yeah, no, I think, yeah, it has, I've only done one two-hour episode previously. Uh, it has been with Shan that you know also. So I think this hot seat was special. <laughs> um, no, thank you so and much. Shan, who was also with Climate Tracker. As a yes. Fellow. Oh, that's maybe a Climate Tracker thing. <laughs> <laughs> We're great talkers. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm sorry if I went on like tangential rants at times. No, that's good. I mean, for me, the philosophy is everything. Anything that emerge, emerges is is the right thing, right? Um, um, but no, for me, personally, I was super happy to know you a bit better. I mean, we've been on a few calls, but, you know, never got this level of details. <laughs> but like never, yeah, I think it's, for me, it's, it's super interesting to understand how you, have, how, how you end up doing everything that you do today. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, I think just in general, it's so interesting, and yeah, as I said, perfect example of, yeah, just find the opportunities, just do stuff and yeah, just, uh, yeah, go for it. And, mm-hmm. oh yeah, let me just recall. Oh, I wanted to ask you the question, but uh, it's, it's okay. I can, oh, I can also put the links to all your presentation from the climate dialogue. Um, but I will end with, uh, with the advice you gave to young people who want to, Take action as like you do. You said, join journalism club <laughs> in your cities and be ready to to mess up and and yeah, because you will mess up, you will need to pitch for a lot of people. So be ready to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, no, thank you so much. That uh, was such a cool conversation. It was a really cool conversation on my end as well. I really enjoyed it. So thanks for inviting me to Lifeline and I look forward to seeing the podcast. Congrats for listening until the end of this episode. Of course, to best support Lifeline, you can share this episode to two of your friends and subscribe to the next episodes on any platform. See you next time.